This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor of Nori and one of the co-founders there too. Today I have with me Joel McCower, chairman and co-founder of GreenBiz Group and co-host of the GreenBiz 350 podcast. Hey, Joel. Hey, Ross. Hey, happy to have you here. Uh, I know you have a big conference coming up. Well, it seems like you always have big conferences coming up. There's so many GreenBiz events, but you've been in clean tech for a very long time. I think you've probably seen virtually every trend come and go. So I want to dive into that whole experience, what you forecast for the future. But why don't we start at the conferences and what GreenBiz is? Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, thanks. It's great, great to be here. And thanks for having me on your show. Uh, So GreenBiz is a media and events company based uh, in Oakland, California. Uh, We uh, convene people. We we take uh, on the climate challenge by creating communities that uh, create action. Four basic topics that we lean into. One is the profession of sustainability inside companies, particularly large companies. And there's a conference around that called GreenBiz every February in, in Phoenix. Uh, the Circular Economy, which is a conference called Circularity. Uh, this will be uh, in May in Seattle this year, next year, 2023. GreenFin and ESG, uh, which is a conference called GreenFin, which will be in Boston in also in May. And then our biggest one is called Verge, which uh, as we're recording this, we just had at the end of October in San Jose, California. We had about 4,000 people. That focuses on climate tech. And it's a big expo at a convention center and all that. So we have the media piece in each of those four quadrants. We have uh, pure networks. We have media. We do a lot of other things as well. We went to Verge several years ago and had a great time too. I can't even remember the last conference I went to, Joel. This could have been three years ago. It could have been five years ago. I can't even. Yeah, I know. Who knows? Time is uh, who knows anymore. At some point in the past, I went to Verge and had a good time. That much can be said <laughs> with certainty. I'm glad to hear that. You know, it's like that. It's like what, what I think Robin Williams said about the '60s. If you were, if you remember the '60s, you weren't really there. So, you know, uh, okay, there you go. You're at, you, you think you're at Verge. So here you go. <laughs> that makes me feel a bit better then. Yeah. Well, what have you seen in this time? I mean, Green Business has been around for a long time. You've been working in clean tech for a long time. How did you get into it? What have you seen over the years? And I mean, I feel like you could fill up a lot of time with this, Joel. There's probably a lot to say, but uh, I'll just give you first crack at it. What have you noticed? Yeah. Well, first of all, those are two separate stories. How did I get into it and what did I see along the way? I mean, I'm a journalist by training. I've also been self-employed for uh, my entire career, 40 some years, and started, have founded or co-founded three companies in the, uh, all in the information services and event space, including one called Clean Edge in 2001 timeframe, which is still around. I'm not involved anymore. 
uh, looking at the at the clean tech space. But uh, even before that, I created GreenBiz uh, as a as a website in in the late '90s, and then it grew into the company that it is now, uh, 60, 70 people, you know, all over the place, and and all the events and things that I mentioned. But on parallel processing and the clean tech 1.0 back in, as I said, 2000, started this company and sort of looking at what was going on out there in terms of that first wave and all the innovation and the venture capitalists and the promise, but turns out not so much actual performance of, of the companies that we invested. I was an advisor or two at a, a billion dollar clean tech fund. Um, uh, and uh, huh. it, it didn't do much, except for a little car company founded by a guy called Elon. It was the only thing that actually had a success at all. And then clean tech sort of crashed and burned in around 2010 and 11. Solyndra got politicized and didn't go away in the same way that the internet didn't go away after the dot-com crash in 2000, 2001. But what we saw happening, and Ross, I'm sure you know the Gartner hype cycle, which is, you know, where we go across technologies and other trends where it sort of starts and then goes up to what's called the, the peak of inflated expectations, and then it crashes and burns into the trough of disillusionment, and then it starts to slowly claw its way back through the slope of enlightenment and finally finds its setting at the, it's called the plateau of productivity. And you can track every technology of in, in your life or, or before and, and everyone going forward, and you can go on the internet and type in hype curve, and you'll see a thousand or 10,000 different hype curves that folks have created. Gartner actually created it and I think still may own the rights to that, but everyone's sort of done that. And so 2010, 11 was sort of that trough of disillusionment for, for clean tech. And out of that, but at the same time, we started to see that something else was happening, which is that the corporates who really hadn't been involved, I, I think there was a period of time in the 2000s when I was the only person who went to both clean tech and sustainable business conferences, literally. And then wow. they started to be around 2010, some a little bit of overlap. And what happened was that the corporate started to come in to say, well, they're customers of these technologies. They're licensors, acquirers, uh, some cases originators through R&D of these technologies. And that's when we saw this mashup of the tech world and the corporate world that I had been, you know, as I said, we're two circles trying to become a Venn diagram. And they finally did that. And so that, that was really a pivotal moment for us. And that's how Verge was born back about 10 years ago where we saw that this is, these are not just technologies, but now markets. What happened with the first clean tech bubble? Many people listening were probably not that involved yeah. at that time. What's the story of it? Well, I think a lot of it was literally inflated expectations. Um, a lot of the investors who had been through the IT revolutions and the web and a number of other things assumed it was going to be similar. You throw some money at things and, and in two, three years or less, in some cases, you have an IPO and, and move on. And it turns out that you know reinventing the energy systems, reinventing transportation systems, uh, buildings, uh, and on and on, not so easy. And uh, huge incumbent interests who were fat and happy, didn't want to be disrupted, and the market wasn't ready, and they and these the technologies took many more years to mature to be market ready than certainly in the dot com era where you had, you know, two guys in a golden retriever and six months later an IPO. That was a lot of it, and 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 then you know the the fossil fuel industries were were digging their heels in around climate and creating false uh, information about that, so the urgency wasn't there. And then some of the technologies, the entrepreneurs were probably 
not ready as well because they were maybe had come out of out of the dot com world and said, "Oh, let's do something in clean tech." I mean, I know entrepreneurs who did that some successfully, very successfully, and many not so much. So it was really a confluence of of forces that, and then then it got politicized, and all of a sudden investors and others were a little bit you know challenged to take things on. And even this is now in the Obama era when there was a lot more support here in the United States for for climate action and for technology uptake. It still was was a big challenge. So uh, I, you know, we got through that, and then the investors got more realistic. The entrepreneurs, you know, I think got more realistic. A lot of technology developments, um, I think, enabled the smart everything world, the electrification everything world that we're now seeing, and I think that helped bring about a a second wave, which frankly we don't call clean tech anymore. We call it climate tech, and I think that seems to be the the term de jour at least. But now climate tech is a, a rapidly growing piece of this. And you know, if you look at what happened in the federal government and the Inflation Reduction Act and, and several other things coming out of the Biden administration and the Congress, they're leaning into climate tech in a very big way. We can get more into some of that. Yeah, I'd be very curious to know about what parallels and the differences with this tech boom that we're in now for climate tech. Although I'm seeing a lot of old records and posters. I see Big Brother and the Holding Company, Mothers of Invention, and a couple others here. I'm wondering, was Solyndra the ultimate moment of the clean tech bubble? Can you say that? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a that's probably a good uh, it's a good analogy. You're, look, you're talking about the uh, the wall and behind me, you know, a lot of people, professionals have their credentials back there. Um, I've got a dozen posters from the Fillmore and Avalon Ballroom growing up here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, that was, all the, all the Bill Graham shows, right? All the, Bill Graham and the Family Bill Dog, Graham. the two competing venues. Those, those are those are kind of my credentials. <laughs> uh, not really, but uh, so, but but yeah. You, so the Altamont was yeah, that was the Rolling Stones concert in I think seventy seventy one where. Hell's Angels got involved in security. There were fights breaking out. Uh, one person died, and it was sort of. Uh, the nadir, not Ralph, but the the low point of rock performance after Woodstock and a whole, you know, the sort of golden age of, of, of rock concerts. And, you know, rock concerts didn't go away, as you may have noticed. And uh, uh, it's just things got more buttoned down, more corporate, a lot more. I mean, you know, you didn't have, you know, anybody sponsoring Woodstock, you know, no Miller Coors signs or, you know, Camel or God knows or anybody else. And so now that's a very different world. And I think, you know, technologies and business models uh, mature, they grow up like the rest of us, hopefully. <laughs> and and I, that's certainly the case when, in the climate tech world. Yeah, you have this sort of like high water mark and then it, it bursts. And then it seems like maybe clean tech, climate tech, whatever taxonomy we want to introduce here takes a couple of years off. P- investors, it's in this trough of disillusionment period. And then at some point, I'm not sure how many years ago, it starts to recover. And now we're in something related, but different. Maybe it's worth contrasting what you see are the differences uh, between the two or what's different this time. Well, yeah, I mean, it didn't really go away any more than the internet went away after the dot-com crash. This is, I think, where things get interesting and and also complex. People refer to uh, clean tech, now climate tech, as the technologies that are you know, sort of obvious around, you know, like solar and wind and electric vehicles. And and there's a thousand other technologies out there that all are, you know, are making things 
efficient. It's challenging because people, you know, do you talk about someone working, you know, obviously battery technologies, but do you talk about, you know, innovative new uh, chemicals made from plants instead of petroleum? Is that climate tech? I mean, you know, it's, it, I don't know, but it goes into making things lighter and, and less carbon intensive and maybe more resilient because you don't have to rely on the vagaries of fossil fuel prices and, and, and other things. And you can go on and on. There's lots and lots and lots of, of sort of technologies and sub-technologies. And then you fold in things like robotics and, and uh, sensors and synthetic biology and uh, you know, just a, a whole list of 3D printing and optical scanning and remote sensing and you know, and, and those are all blockchain. Uh, those are all part of, uh, of what's making this next movement uh, or wave, I guess, of technologies possible. So, you, t- you know, you take precision ag, water tech, optical scanning and robotics just to pick four technologies. And all of a sudden you're growing food with small fraction of the water that you used to. And is that climate tech? Well, you know, arguably, if you can grow more food on less land and deplete the soil less and, and improve people's lives and, and move the needle on, on some issues, I guess. But I don't, it doesn't really matter what you call it. They're just better technologies. Yeah. In some ways, it's just a marketing term. If you make a better video gaming experience and people are staying home rather than driving somewhere to do something outside, it might be lower emissions. Is that climate tech? I don't know. Yeah, that may be a stretch, but but you know, but yeah, you're right. The point is dead on that there's a lot of things that we do to reduce emissions, use resources more efficiently, create circular business models that aren't generally considered or at least haven't been considered clean tech or climate tech, and yet they are critical to sustainability and to, you know, reducing the impacts of climate. There's a lot of things in food, for example, in food production, food growing, food waste, as I just mentioned on, you know, the water tech, optical scanning, robotics, and precision ag, where you, you know, you're doing a fraction of the water that, that are in this mix. And again, how do we think about those? So these labels really are sort of arbitrary and, and not so helpful. Maybe less arbitrary is you've mentioned a few times that this climate tech experience this time around feels much more corporate than the previous clean tech bubble. There's probably a more neutral way to say it than the bubble, but am I understanding you correctly? Well, I think the corporates are much more involved and in, they're involved at the R&D stage. Some of they have their corporate venturing arms that didn't care about this stuff 10 years ago or even five who are, that are now. 10 years ago, was it much more just like only startups or sort of like permaculture weirdos hanging out or what was it? Yeah, I mean, or it was it was things that just weren't. Look, this all syncs up with the trends of corporate net zero commitments and and the rise of ESG and investor pressures around risk of, of climate risk in particular. And so there was no uh, hate to use this term, but I'll use it: burning platform. You know that that was uh, really pushing companies to do these things. They were nice to do's at best. And now they, they need these technologies. They need to, from their, in their supply chains, in their their own production, if they're a manufacturer, they need to reduce risk. They need to improve, uh, reducing risk includes things like uh, business continuity risk as, uh, you know, floods and hurricanes and droughts and other things uh, up in supply chains as we've seen, or pandemics as we've seen so much uh, in the past few years. 
so this is is getting corporates where they live now. They have to be doing this. And so they're looking for these technologies. They're hungry for some of these technologies, not every company, but a lot of them. And so they're, they're in many cases, I think the smart ones, they're linking arms with some of the entrepreneurs and saying, well, this is, you know, this, this fuel cell you've developed could do any number of 14 different things. But here's the thing we need. We need specifically to this kind of vehicle or this kind of application. And so the entrepreneur says, well, that's interesting. I hadn't been looking at that. I've been looking at seven other things. Maybe that's the way we should go. And that's the way you get to market faster. So I think that that's a really interesting space. And you know, one of the challenges for entrepreneurs is how do you have those conversations with companies and how do you get get in the door? And and that's not an easy answer. And during the clean tech bubble, you think corporates could afford to ignore climate change in a way that we're now it no longer even makes just bottom line sense to do so? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the bottom line piece of that still is is, is challenging for some, but the question is, is you know, do you invest in this stuff, even though the paybacks may may not meet the your traditional hurdle rates in your company uh, or your fund, uh, because uh, a you believe in it, and b you think there's a payoff that's longer term down the road, or c because you have to, because this is an investment you have to make to increase to reduce risk. I mean, a lot of this, you know, for all the talk about doing good and you know saving the world and the earth and all and all that. It, a lot of this really boils down to one word, risk, uh, financial risk, reputational risk, technology risk, transitional risk, right to operate risk, and, and on and on. And so companies, they know about risk. They have risk departments. They have folks who, who factor this stuff in. And by the way, risk isn't always a bad, bad thing. Everything we do has a risk component, maybe really low risk. Maybe you know, and maybe some, maybe a higher risk, and sometimes that higher risk is worth taking because of some circumstance or interest. But weighing risk is something companies do very well, and there's and now climate, by virtue, if if only by virtue of the mainstream investment community, has become a risk factor, and companies not paying attention to climate are increasing any number of risks that investors frankly care about. Hmm. Maybe it's the long shadow of Solyndra, but I associate Cleantech Bubble 1.0 as being a solar-driven experience. Is that a total misinterpretation? Yeah. I mean, first of all, for people who didn't happen to be in this space, and you know, Solyndra was a, a solar company, actually a tube kind of solar collector. So that's hence the sol- cylindrical part of Solyndra that captured light from all dimensions and or, or captured sunlight or in all dimensions and therefore was going to be more efficient, which was is, is always been the, the big gating issue with solar is how much of how much how many photons can you convert into electrons? And they got some hundreds of millions of dollars from federal government funding, and then they went bust. And the Republicans glommed onto that, saying that's a waste. This is all a waste. It's a boondoggle. It's a caving to Al Gore and his rich friends and who are all trying to make money. They had a million things as they as they do. And the fact is, is that is you know, two things. One, you know, federal government make trillions of dollars of investment in, in, through the Defense Department and technologies that never see the light of day. So this was not even a fraction of a percent relative to that. And number two, that's what these innovations are about. And out of failure comes successes and comes lessons. And nobody seems to get that. And by the way, there was also a, 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 the aforementioned car company called Tesla that was part of the same loan program that paid its loans back with interest early 
and turned into the company it's become. So nobody talks about thank you federal government for backing that. They just you know talked about the you know how dare you waste money on some solar boondoggle that because it didn't work out. I'm sorry to your question. There were a lot of other technologies. There are battery technologies and fuel cells and biomass and chemicals and e-bikes and a lot of things that frankly we now take for granted or are part of part and parcel of our day, but were early and disruptive back then and and probably not ready for prime time. Yeah, all those things I associate with the last couple of years. I see e-bikes constantly all day, every day now, but even two years ago, I'm not even sure that I would have seen it to, to this frequency. So I don't even really associate those with the first clean tech explosion. And maybe that's just a failure of the longevity of my watching here that I really should be looking farther back in time, watching these first developments before they're ubiquitous. That's where this is happening is, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Yeah. I'm not sure how much you need to look back as much as just look forward. But yeah, there was, it was a very broad range of technologies, some of which, as I said, you know, e-bikes proposed, they went away and, and then they came back and the market wasn't ready. The technology wasn't ready. The incentives weren't there. The cultural buy-in may not have been there. All the things that made it successful ultimately probably weren't in place. You know, market, market timing is critical on these technologies and you can have the best technologies that just aren't ready for the market or, or they're missing one piece of not just technology, but think about policies, enabling policies. And we're now seeing uh, you know, some states and localities uh, giving rebates and, and to e-bikes, encouraging those. Uh, and so that's spurring the market. We're seeing uh, more streets designed for walkability. And uh, I know here in California, we see a lot of Two lane streets that are now one lane, and there's a bike lane and a walking lane, and 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 other things that are making you know trying to wean people not off cars but less less reliant. And so those are all enabling components of things that make these technologies ready. It's not just the technologies themselves. Many of those things you just named are, are policy measures. Those <laughs> need to be in place to some degree to support this tech or just to enable it to be functional, seemingly. Yes, and it's remarkable how far this has all come in, you know, given the lack of of policy support, at least in the United States. Hmm. If you live in any state not called California, you're probably not seeing the kinds of things where here in California you say, oh yeah, you know, everything's incented from using less water to getting out of your car to electrifying your your home. There's significant carrots for doing that. There's a cultural acceptance of that. No one looks at you funny. And in fact, people start to look at you funny if you're still driving certain things, you know, and there's, you know, we can talk about shaming and, you know, the role of all that, if that's even appropriate, but the policy environment is huge. And yet so much happened. I mean, just during the previous administration, this did not go away, despite the fact that this administration was hugely uh, allergic to anything having to do with clean and green or climate. And yet a lot of the biggest developments happened over those four years. How much of changes that happen uniquely in California do you see as cultural versus some higher level political organization? Probably hard to disentangle the two. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the you know, look, it's a blue state, very blue state. And we have we've had some very progressive leaders, Jerry Brown and now Gavin Newsom driving this, who get both the threat and the opportunity of confronting the climate crisis and have translated that not just into words, but into actions. In some cases, in both cases with both governors, very bold actions 
that put California at the forefront, at least among the 50 states, and ultimately become the default because of, you know, we're the fifth or sixth, you know, largest economy in the world, depending on how Italy's doing on any given day. And so New York and a bunch of other mostly blue states, but not entirely, you know, will sign on to uh, the the fuel efficiency mandates of for automotives. Will fl- sign on to the appliance efficiency mandates or the or the home building mandates or you know the grid mandates. Yeah, a lot of it. I mean, we don't own the future, but a lot of the future starts in California, and and fans its way out. And and some of that way before California is a lot of European and. And other countries that that are leading the way where this is less politically fraught. Do you have any thoughts on how the near future will play out with regards to climate tech? Any new expectations this time around? I don't think that it's going to be subject to the vagaries of world economy as much as it was. Uh, we saw some downturns 2008, 2009, and, and then, of course, the politicalization in 2010, 11. I don't see any indications of that. The climate crisis is now front center the solutions the mandates for renewable energy for for decarbonizing homes for getting uh, out of internal combustion engines for basically phasing down fossil fuels are there they may not be as robust as we need but the, the market signals are there the investors are coming in big time and, and there are laws around this and so some things may slow some new technology worthy technologies may not get the investment as we if we go into recession or, or worse in, in the US or globally. But my sense is that it's a blip and that this we are on a, uh, a course that is inevitable. It's just the question is how long can the incumbents drag this out so they can squeeze every, every nickel out of the assets that they have? They've done a really good job of that through disinformation and lobbying and other things. I'll be a, a lot of times lobbying through disinformation. And so the question is, how, how far, how long can I get away with that before the culture and the politics take over? And how many states will say, you know, Congress, you're, you want to roll stuff back, you know, fine, but we're going to roll stuff forward. And in spite of that, and all of a sudden you've got 10, 20, 30 states that are taking some action and that becomes the default standard. And yeah, there'll always be Texas and, and Florida and Mississippi and North Dakota and Alaska and a few other states that are going to be the laggards. But even some of them, I mean, look, Texas is the biggest wind state. Um, you know, why uh, Governor Abbott isn't getting dinged for having really screwed up both the freeze and the storms that have knocked out power during his term in Texas. You know, nobody seems to care about that. In other states, that might be uh, fatal, but it's not for him. So they're going to keep going as long as they can squeeze their political, their own political futures out of this as well. I'm wondering at what point we'll see the politicization of this decrease. I mean, one of the most hopeful things I've seen is the degree to which the Department of Defense and military are preparing for climate change. I mean, they're practical people. And I think it would be safe to say as an institution tends to be more conservative than other parts of the government. Surely that should be a sign of things to come for people. But maybe the disinformation and misinformation is so widespread that it doesn't prevent people from getting elected. It's not pulling the lever in the right kind of way to actually depoliticize this. Yeah. I mean, the military budgets are so opaque uh, that I don't know how many people really appreciate the fact that the Department of Defense in the United States is really leading the way in a lot of these things. And for them, it's all about risk. I mean, when you're sending a tanker full of diesel out into the battlefield to refuel tanks and other things, 
it is a rolling bomb waiting to explode. And so being able to generate electricity on site through wind or solar or, or something else is a huge risk reduction factor. It may also make them more mobile and, and, and more resilient in, in a number of different ways if they can just you know shut it down and move it to a different spot. And so they they care deeply about this stuff, and you know they also recognize that uh, they are going to be stepping into skirmishes, if not wars, that are based on climate, where resource shortages, food shortages, uh, droughts, where there's going to be mass migration around the world that's going to you know cause some kind of uh, potentially uh, government uh, overthrows of government. And then, of course, all the you know the, those who are trying to keep things as they are, who, the, who are, want, are still making money off the off the incumbent technologies. I mean, this is going to get ugly, and the and Defense Department is going to find itself in the middle of this. So they know, you know, the direction of travel for the world on these topics, and they they want to be ready and they want to be resilient themselves. I find that to be extremely persuasive, and I, I'm wondering why in like right of center facing climate chatter that isn't more prominent because i find that to be if you if you do care about the military in that way the fact that they're taking it seriously should should really help push that along is there any reason why that rhetorically isn't more employed look ross if you read the comments and the commentary about why climate change is still seen as the greatest hoax ever perpetuated on the american public as senator inhofe said some time ago from oklahoma they all have all kinds of to them rational reasons, it's not just, you know, we need to protect fossil fuels, of why this, we don't need to go there, that these are natural cycles, that these things are not proven, that there's actually counterfactual evidence that the climate isn't changing. And then there's just the reality of, you know, of, of facts and science and the role that that's taken on in this, uh, in our current reality, that people don't believe it, or they ignore it, or they, they just have, as uh, Kellyanne Conway once said, their alternative facts. And so that's just the reality we live in. The question is, what influence and power do those voices have? And for a long time, they had, they had significant impact. And, and I think now they're being somewhat marginalized, but still, they still have a lot of ears of a lot of people who, particularly those who happen to represent fossil fuel interests or mining interests, and choose to believe a whole different reality than the overwhelming science community, that's their choice. The question is, how, who's believing them? And how do we marginalize those voices? And yeah, the military, I'm sure there's a reason why well, the mil they understand why the military is doing this, and they're all for it. And yet it still doesn't, uh, for them, persuade them to support any you know, global efforts to combat the climate crisis. I can't leave our audience on such a, a grim note here. Joel. Do you have anything anything you're looking forward to? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that we are in an extraordinarily exciting moment. Unbelievably exciting moment and terrifying. But let's stick with the exciting part that we have an opportunity to really reinvent our world. Not just an opportunity, but a mandate to reinvent our world, how we live, transport, heat, cool, eat, shop, recreate, pretty much everything we do. And, and to do it in a way where it's better, frankly. It's better for our health. It's better for our kids. It makes us more resilient. There's an abundance that comes out of it. It's not about living in some cold, dark world. 
No, I mean, you're, you're, you're laughing, Ross, and but there are people who believe that still, a lot of them. And so this is a huge opportunity and to do all of this in a way that benefits everybody, those at the, in every... You know, at every level of the income ladder, those in the most marginalized communities, not some elitist high income kind of thing. So this is a, just an extraordinary opportunity. You know, on my better days, uh, when I'm not reading the political news, I could not be more excited about the future and optimistic about, you know, what's possible out there. The question is, you know, do we have the will? Do we have the money? Do we have, uh, it's really the will more than anything to get all this done. And um, again, I'll just say that in spite of the politics, in spite of the four years you know, prior to the Biden administration, we got a lot, we made a lot of progress. Um, you know, and now we have these, the wind at our back uh, of these, the CHIPS Act and the, the Infrastructure Act and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that uh, are going to inject far more, even than the experts believe, the, the impacts of that both directly and indirectly are huge. So we are about to see the golden age of climate tech. And it's not going to be just a year or two. And it's not going to go away if uh, politicians or the economies sort of work against it. It's, it's, it's an inexorable march of progress. And I think we all have to recognize and lean in and celebrate that. It seems like a good place to do that would be any of the Green Biz events that are coming up. Maybe you can run us through that one more time for our audience if they'd like to attend. Well, you can go to greenbiz.com and, and learn about them. We have the, uh, the Climate Tech Conference, which we just finished, so it won't be around again until the last week of October in San Jose, California next year. Uh, and we do ones on circular economy and, and sustainable finance and the profession of sustainability. But the best thing to do is just uh, go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters. We have seven of them, including one on climate tech, including one on food and energy and transportation and mobility and others. And they're free. And there's just a lot of information that as our analysts track the trends. And you'll also learn about upcoming conferences. And people can also get more of you personally from your podcast, too. How's, how's that all going? What's the life? Hey. It's, you know, we just celebrated our seventh year of, of um, Green Biz 350. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, we started years, right I already be- feel like I've been doing it a long time. Seven years, though? Wow. Yeah. We started right before COP21, the Paris COP. Uh, so that was 2015. And here we are, you know, we're talking right on the cusp of COP27, but the, the numbers don't work because there's we skipped a year. So it should be COP28, which would have made it seven years. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. it's, it's a fresh one every Friday. Uh Go to greenbiz.com slash 350-350, and you can learn more about that. Links to all of those things are in the show notes. Check them out. Go to a Greenbiz event. As I mentioned earlier, I once went to Verge and had a really a great time. I think I might have even been more than one. I can't even remember. Well, Anyways. we got to have you back. The end of October in San Jose, it's going to be epic. We're going to have six, 7,000 people there. It's going to be wow. amazing. You wow. should do You should do some, uh, come and set up a studio and do some interviews down there. It'll be, we'll show you a good time, Ross. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's talk. That sounds good. Well, thanks for being here, Joel. It's my pleasure, Ross. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like what we do here, please give us a great rating or review on Apple podcasts or Spotify. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Check out green Biz's, uh links in the show notes and have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.